please stand if you're able to read from Revelation 3 about the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, it is good to see how many of you braved the uh, difficult roads, some of you from a good distance away. And uh, uh, it's been kind of a crazy morning. I know there's a lot that's going on, so many obstacles, so I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Um, I'm looking forward to considering this letter, uh, this section of the letters of Jesus with you. Uh, but before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we once again uh, pause uh, to remember the truth that has been kind of there throughout this time that we've been meeting this morning, that, that as we're meeting, it's not only with each other, uh, but it is with you, uh, the very creator of the universe, the one who calls us to himself, the one who so loves us that he has given his son for us. And so, Father, we ask that you would enable us to trust in that love, and therefore, to open our hearts and our minds as you speak to us. Would your spirit please give us an awareness of what is true and how, how you are speaking directly to who we are, that we might be shaped by your word and that we might be changed, that more and more we would be the people that you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now in the fifth of the seven letters that we are working through in what we are calling Jesus's letters to us. These are the seven letters that Jesus writes that we see at the very beginning of Revelation, where even though it's addressed to specific churches, we can tell by a number of clues that really Jesus is also intending everyone to hear this and everyone to listen to see as different churches what God is saying directly to them. And I wonder if during this series, if you've been with us from kind of the beginning, if you felt kind of a, a weightiness, a heaviness to some of what we've been considering. Because as you might have noticed, there are a lot of warnings. There is a solemnity. At times it almost feels like a sternness of the way that Jesus speaks, these, these concerns, these cautions throughout these letters. And I hope that as we have looked through these letters, that even as we have heard these warnings and we've thought carefully about it, that you have not missed that there's something else that is present in every single letter, and that is a promise. Even as Jesus seeks to warn his church, 
he also seeks to encourage us, to give us hope. Again and again, he says, to the one who overcomes, I will give, I will give. There are promises after promises throughout these letters. And if we had to summarize what these promises were all about, maybe just one word, that word would probably be life. You know, the very first letter that Jesus writes to the the church in Ephesus, he says, to the one who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. The next letter, he says, the one who overcomes, I will give the crown of life. And if you're noticing this morning, as was read, we just heard that Jesus says, the one who overcomes, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Again and again, Jesus promises life to those who are faithful. And and when he's speaking of life, it's not just, you know, having a heartbeat. It's not just physical life. He's talking about life in its full. When we sometimes say that person is really alive, we know we're not just saying, hey, they have a really healthy heart. We're talking about the way that they live, how there is energy, there is vitality, there is joy to the way they live. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. When I was a kid, I used to love fairy tales. I actually had this, this big book that I would go through. Maybe you had a similar love, maybe not. But the thing that's kind of funny about that is there is zero suspense about how fairy tales end, right? I mean, you know, everyone who has read a fairy tale knows that in the very end, it's going to say, and they all lived happily ever after. And of course, there are moments of danger. You know, Jack faces the giant or, or Snow White falls asleep, but you know where it's going. And at least for me, it was actually because of that, because there was no ultimate suspense that I liked it so much. There was something soothing about the idea that life can have a destination and that that destination can be happily ever after, whatever that means. And I want to say that when Jesus is saying, I want to give you life, that that's what he's talking about. He's talking about life in the full, life as a happily ever after. And so even in the promises that we see this morning, he is is speaking to some of our deepest desires. He says, you know, in verse 4, when he talks about people who have not soiled their garments, that is, people who have been faithful, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Now this image of of Jesus clothing in in white garments actually has has a lot of meaning to it. Uh, Part of what Jesus is promising is victory. In that day, if you were part of a victorious army, if you were marching on a parade through the city, you would be clothed in white garments. It was a sign of having won. And Jesus is, is promising that to us. Many of us have a deep desire within ourselves to be successful, for lack of a better word. Even though we might not even know exactly what success means, we know that we want to make something of our lives. We want to feel at the end of all things that we have lived well. And Jesus says, I will give you a white robe. Earlier, I will give you a crown If you follow me, if you trust in me, you will have made something of your life. You will not regret. You will be filled with joy and glory and success. You will live happily ever after. That same image of a white robe also has this image of purity. A couple of chapters later, there's this paradoxical image where we we read about the saints 
who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The, the blood of Christ, unlike any other blood, rather than staining, purifies and cleanses so that the one who is in Christ is pure. And whether you have ever named it as such or not, my guess is you have deep within you a desire to be pure. If we've lived any length of time, we feel frustration at times with ourselves because we know that we were created to be more than the way we are. We feel frustrated by our lack of discipline or our, our lack of motivation, sometimes the way we snap at others in anger or, or the self-absorption. And we feel the fact that we have made mistakes. We feel shame at our past. And we long to be more than what we are right now. And Jesus says, if you come to me, if you trust in me, I give you a completely fresh start. I, I wash your robes in my blood so that they are white. I make you fully and completely and wholly the person that you were created to be. The one who comes to me will be pure and he will live happily ever after. Jesus speaks also of, in this image, he says, they will walk with me in white. Many of us have this longing to belong. If you're like me, you, you know what it is to have at times in your life where you feel like you are on the outside and there's this in-group and you so want to be part of that in-group. You, you want to be amongst a community where you're accepted, where you're loved, where you know that you're at home amongst that people. And that's what Jesus says, I, I will walk with you you will be mine. You will be part of my people. So much so that he says, I will confess your name before God the Father. Can you imagine that? On the last day, when we appear before the great almighty God, Jesus points to us by name and says, that's Jeff Ziegler. That's, he's mine. He belongs to me. That's, that's Sue DeSanta. That's John Bone. They belong to me. That's the promise that you will belong in Christ and live happily ever after. And then you have, have this image of security also here in these promises. We, we, we feel the uncertainty of life, don't we? Things keep on coming at us that surprise us, that makes us feel vulnerable, and we want to just know that we can be sure that things are gonna turn out okay. And what does Jesus promise here? He says, the one who overcomes, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. The image is of him having this book that belongs to him that has every name of every individual that he has died for, everyone that he has saved. Long before we even were born, our names were written. Those names are written in ink, and they will never be scratched out. They will never be blotted out. They will always be there. Your future is certain. In me, you know that you will live happily ever after. These are where Jesus' promises are taking us. Again and again, Jesus is saying, I desire to give you life. And, and it is important for us to understand that that's what is motivating these letters. Jesus is not writing these letters because he's just feeling stern and he wants us to feel bad. The only thing that is motivating Jesus in writing these letters is his longing to give us the blessing that he died for. 
He went to the cross and died and rose again because he is so utterly committed to giving us life, to bringing us into this happily ever after. And again and again in each of these letters, he promises. And what he's saying is, hold on. We sang about this when we talked about the eternal weight of glory. Hold on. It is hard right now. But keep going, trusting in me. I promise you, in me is life, and you will live happily ever after. And so if we come to warnings, like we actually have one of the warnings in our letters this morning, we need to realize that it is coming not from sternness or meanness, but from a deep love for us and a longing to see us experience the life that Jesus died for. The seriousness that sometimes we see in these letters comes because Jesus has never forgotten and never will forget that when we're talking about our spiritual condition, we are talking about a matter of life and death. You know, one of the strange things about the ways that just life works, and maybe you've thought of this, maybe you haven't, is if you are exposed to a danger long enough, you can forget just how dangerous it is. I mean, one easy example of this is, is driving. When you are like 15 and a half or 15, you've gotten your permit, and the first time you take the wheel and you're driving, like your knuckles are white, like the wheel has like these indented marks in it because you're holding so tight, because you realize that you are driving a death machine. Or at least sometimes you do, at least I did. And you know that if you do something wrong, you could, you could hurt yourself, you could hurt someone else. But then, you know, just, you know, like you turn 16 and a half, 17, and you completely forget that, and you're driving like you could never die, right? And, and even now, when we're driving, we forget that there are, there's danger, right? And, and it's not just in that. You can have things that are incredibly dangerous that if you just keep on doing something over a routine, you just forget it. There's... There's this event that took place. In, in 1980, the small town in Arkansas, there's a nuclear silo in this small town, and things went horribly wrong one day. So in this silo, you have this 100-foot monster of a missile, a Titan II, with a 9-megaton-yielding warhead. Uh, that didn't mean anything to me until I looked it up. That's 600 Hiroshima atomic bombs stacked together. That's 9 megatons. It's incredibly destructive, right? And the thing that was terrible about these missiles is that they were using a fuel that was very unstable. I mean, exposure to almost anything could cause it to ignite. And they needed routine day after day after day maintenance. So there's this one time where you have these two men, they're at the end of their shift, they're tired, they're supposed to be doing this, they're near the very top of this 100-foot missile that's vertical. And they're supposed to repair something and they don't have the right wrench but they have something else, not the one that's supposed to be the one they use, but it can kind of work. It's just really big and really heavy. So they pull it out, and as one person is handing it to another, they let it drop. And remember, they're about 100 feet up, and this, this wrench just comes plummeting down 70, 80 feet, and then glances off the side of the missile, and suddenly they hear a leak. And you have this, this fuel coming out, filling the silo with these noxious fumes, and there could be an explosion at any moment. And so the, the, the alarms are going, there's lights that are flashing, they're leaving, they call, it goes all the way up to like the highest command, what do we do, they can't figure out what to do, so they all just evacuate, but they don't know what's going to happen. If an explosion happens, it is not clear to the people there whether or not that will ignite the nine megaton warhead. So they get to the surface, because this is all underground, 
And not that long after, there is a massive explosion. They, witnesses speak of seeing like chunks of concrete that are the size of small trucks flying in the air. But, but there's no nine megaton warhead going off. A couple of people died, but it could have been so much worse. And just imagine if you were, if you were those two guys repairing and you thought for a moment about just how dangerous your job is, how far more careful you would have been. But they forget. You might ask, how could you forget that you are working on a nuclear missile? But if you work with something day in and day out, you forget when you are dealing with matters of life and death. And the same holds true when it comes to our spiritual condition. We can forget that when it comes to who we are before God, we are dealing with a matter of eternal life and death. But Jesus never forgets. And that's why we have these, these warnings. And, and we see in, 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 this, in this letter, Jesus speaking exactly of those things. Notice how he begins this letter with this exact focus. Halfway through verse 1, he says, I know your works. He's speaking to the church in Sardis. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This is a life and death situation, and you, you think you are alive. You think you're okay, but you as a church, you need to know that, that you barely have a heartbeat, that in many ways you are dead. This is a church, if it has the reputation of being alive, we should assume that it was a church that was doing well. By all accounts, Sardis was not a place where there was much persecution. So this is a church that was able to worship openly. Perhaps it was gathering people, it was growing. Maybe you had, you know, like kind of some dynamic ministry, good art, who knows what's going on. But, but what's clear is if people heard about Sardis, they'd say, hey, now there's a church where things are going great. And undoubtedly, if you belonged to that church, you would be saying the same thing. This is a great church. Wow, it's so alive. You have the reputation for being alive, Jesus says. But in reality, you are dead. And in saying this, he's touching on one of the more disturbing truths that we find in Scripture. That it's entirely possible to be convinced that everything is fine between you and God and be completely wrong about it. We touched on this last week. In the book of Jeremiah, we see the entire people of Israel, even though they're being idolatrous, they're abandoning God, yet they believe that God is totally for them. And God says, the heart is deceitful above all things. I will judge. In the, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says one of the most frightening things in all the scripture. He says, there's going to come a day on the last day when I come back. And some of you will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, you will call me Lord. And you will say, i I baptized in your name. I did remarkable things in your name. And Jesus will say to those people, I don't know you. Because your life does not correspond with your profession. You do not belong to me. You are dead. And Jesus says, watch out to the church in Sardis. That very thing could happen to you. Notice that's the instruction he gives in verse 2. Wake up. Don't you see, it's a matter of life and death. You might be thinking all casually, but wake up, verse 3. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Most common get, commentators say that, that the church in Sardis would have been especially sensitive to this kind of instruction because, well, the city was famous for a failure. 
This city actually was well known for having incredible defenses, both its position geographically and also its walls made it very difficult for invaders to capture. And yet, on at least two different occasions, invaders captured Sardis. And it wasn't because of a lack of good defenses. It was because of a lack of attentiveness. Guards just weren't paying attention. They weren't ready. And because they weren't ready, when these people came, whether it was by night or an unexpected time, they got destroyed. And Jesus says, you know what that's like, and I'm telling you, wake up. Because if you don't, if you stay the way that you are right now, where you are dead, when I come, it will be horrifying. Now we might ask, why is it that Jesus says that this church, even though they look alive, are dead? And, and what he says in verse 2 explains that. He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The word works is really just a Bible word. I can't think of any other time in normal life that we talk about the works that we do. Really, we speak of, you know, the choices that we make or our actions. It's just talking about the same thing. When you hear works, think of choices we make, the actions that we do. And if you've been with us the last few weeks and you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that this is actually something that keeps on becoming repeated. So to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, repent and do the works you did at first. To the church in Thyatira, he said, I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one according to his works. And then here, I have not found your works complete. You know, there's... Um, this sitcom that Jennifer and I enjoy, maybe some of you have seen, it's called The Good Place. It's kind of a strange comedy because it's a comedy about what happens to four people in the afterlife. It doesn't sound like that makes sense, but it actually kind of works, at least for us. And, uh, and, and part of the premise that it plays with is the idea that your outcome in the afterlife has everything to do with how many points you acquired in this life. So, you know, if you, if you make an old lady smile, that's a few points. If you, you know, kind of sign up with Greenpeace and do a few things, it's maybe about 20 points. It says at one point that if, you know, you, you know, commit human genocide, it's like negative 4 billion points. And you just, like, add it all up, and wherever your score is decides whether you are in, like, the good place or the bad place. And really, that's probably, and I think what this is parodying is actually the way that many of us think, that it's just a matter of getting enough points for us to enter into heaven. And, and, and the Bible is clear that that's not at all what's going on. That when we're talking about works, we should not be thinking about points in any way or, or how works score. We've already said that Jesus speaks of those whose, whose robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Throughout scripture, the answer to our question of what will happen to us has everything to do not just with us, but with Jesus. If we are in Christ, what he has done his dying, his rising again, his living righteously, that's what decides what happens to us. If we are in Christ, we are forgiven, we are accepted, we belong to God. There is no ambiguity about that in Scripture. It's not about us earning our way. It's about us being in Christ. And we are in Christ by faith, by trusting in him as our King and Savior. But what scripture is also clear about is that the clearest indication of whether we have a faith in Christ is in what we do. It's in our actions. It's in the choices that we make. 
You know, right now, if we were to look outside, we can see a whole bunch of trees without leaves, and I would not be able to look at them and tell you which one is alive and which one is dead. Maybe Skip Heidler could, but he's the only one here who probably would know how. But when spring comes, then it's easy, isn't it? You know whether something is alive because of the leaves and the buds and the fruit. Now, those leaves are not what makes the tree of life, the tree alive, but it shows you whether it's truly alive or not. And the same holds with, with our works. What we do, our actions, our choices, reveals what's going on inside, whether there is life within or not. And, and we get this. We understand this is just the way things work. Uh, we have expressions like talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words, don't we? Because we understand if you really want to know who the person is, it's not just about how they think of themselves or what they say about themselves, it's, it's what you see in their lives. So a person might say that they care deeply about the environment, but when you hang around them and you notice they have like the biggest gas-guzzling vehicle possible and that when they're in the park they're just littering like crazy and they consume a whole bunch of stuff and never recycle, you would say, well, they might think they care about the environment, but they clearly don't have that deep of a concern because their life doesn't show it at all. Because, because how we live, the actions, the choices we make reveals what is actually true inside of our heart. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, your works are incomplete, and I know you're dead because of that. He's saying, you might think that you trust in me, but the gospel has not had its effect on you because your life does not show that you are changed. Your life, when I look at your actions, they reveal not life, but death. Verse 4 helps explain a little bit more what he's talking about. He says, there are a few names, that is, unlike the rest of the church in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments. And by implication, what he's saying is, most of you have soiled your garments. And, and this idea of soiling garments is not just like making a mistake one time. The idea is a lifestyle of unfaithfulness. Uh, one commentator said that what's being talked about here is people who accommodate their lives to the customs of their heathen neighbors. In other words, it's syncretism that he's talking about. Uh, if you're not familiar with the idea of syncretism, syncretism is what happens when you take some of the things of Christianity and you mix it with some of the things of the world around you, some of the religions or beliefs, to make something that makes more sense to you but it's a little bit different from the original Christianity. So we see this example, for example, in voodoo in, in, in Haiti and in New Orleans, where that's actually syncretism. They take some of the things from like Roman Catholicism and some of the things from kind of spirit worship, and they put it together, and we go, oh, that's not Christianity. That's totally different. The problem is, when it's our own country, we don't recognize it as much because syncretism makes sense to us. We don't realize that it's a perversion of Christianity. But it's just as syncretistic. It's just as far away from the gospel as voodoo is. So what would, what would a dead church, a church that has accommodated itself to the world around look like? Well, if we're talking about like a modern church of Sardis in our country, we would probably notice it's this beautifully big building. Thousands of people are coming. And when we come and are part of the worship service, we notice just how how entertaining it is. It's, it's lively. The music is great. And when the speaker speaks, he is funny, he is engaging, and he is encouraging. And, and the, the words are inspirational, but as you start listening, 
And if you're there week after week, you realize that there's never, ever a call for confession. There's never a sense of the need for repentance, just to inspire, to make people feel better about things. There certainly isn't ever any word of of church discipline because when you look at it, you realize there's no expectation that people are going to have to sacrifice anything. The message ultimately is, if you go with Jesus, you will get all those other things that you want and he will get you your idols. And you realize there's no change, there's no sacrifice, there's no dying to self, there is no following Christ. It looks alive, but in reality it's dead. A person And even a church can mistakenly believe that they are filled with the life that is found in Christ and yet be absolutely dead. And the way to discern whether there is life or death is to look at the life. Is the life a life where sacrifices are being made, where obedience is taking place, where hard things are being done because of a faith in Jesus as king? Or is the life identical to the world around it? Jesus, who so deeply desires to give life that he died to bring it, says, wake up. This is a matter of life and death, and I want you to live. Now this morning, I don't know what's going on right now inside of you. There there may well be some of you, even this morning right now, who are hearing God speak to you, and you are realizing this is describing me. All my life, I have called myself a Christian. Maybe I go to church. But if, I, if I'm really honest with myself, I have never actually surrendered myself to Christ. I have never made any sacrifices to obey. My life does not display the life of Jesus. If that's you, I hope that you understand what we've been saying. That the one who calls you to change is the one who loves you. That he has died for you. That he has given everything for you, and he welcomes you with forgiveness as you turn to him. But whether that's you or not, it's important to hear the instructions that Jesus gives to this church in Sardis, this this church that is barely there anymore. It's interesting and important to me that when Jesus says, wake up, he doesn't say, wake up, just try harder, do a whole bunch of things. No, notice the instruction he gives to this church that is barely there, that is drowsy. When he says, wake up, he says, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember what you have seen and heard. Keep it and repent. What is it that they have seen and heard? Well, at some point, many years ago, there was someone or a group of people who came to them and said, the most amazing thing has taken place. There is this man who came, who did miracles and spoke unlike anyone we've ever seen. And and he was killed, and three days later, he rose again. And this man said, I have been given authority all nations. And we came to realize that this is not just any man, that this is actually the Son of God. And that when he died, he died for us. So that no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, Jew or Gentiles, whatever, we can be saved through him. And he invites us to join his kingdom, to believe in him, and experience his salvation. That's what they saw and they heard. And many people believed. And Jesus says, go back to that. Remember 
what you have heard and keep it. You know, it might be, if, if you look at your life and you realize that your life is, is not in obedience to Christ, it may be that it's because you're dead. Or it could be that you're spiritually immature. But whatever is the situation, the solution is the same. That you need not just to try harder, but you need to hear the gospel more clearly. That you need to know what it means that Jesus is the king who has died for you and saved you. And not just to understand it here, but to keep it, to let it shape you. Because ultimately, what makes us alive is not just trying. What makes us alive is the knowledge that the Savior of the world has died for us, that he loves us, that he has saved us. Do you know that? Jesus says, here's what you need, O dead church. Here is the way to life. Remember who I am. Remember what I have done. And as you remember and hold on to it, repent. And what does repent mean? Repent is, is a U-turn in life. It is to recognize that you've done something wrong, to confess it, and to choose to do something different. It's to recognize, to confess, and to choose differently. That's the way of the Christian life. Whether you are dead who need to become alive or whether you're alive, the life of the Christian is a life of someone who recognizes and holds on to the truth of the gospel. And so when they see that they have done wrong, they recognize it, they confess it, and they repent. And Jesus says that's the way of life. The one who overcomes, who keeps a life of ongoing repentance, who is faithful to me, I will give life. This is a matter of life and death, Jesus says. Trust in me. And he says at the end, he who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to us. Let's take a few moments to, to listen silently, to pray silently, as we seek to, to acknowledge where we have wronged God, and then I'll lead us in confession in a couple of minutes. Father, in the quietness of this time, as we um, turn our hearts and our minds towards you, we acknowledge that we see only a fraction of our sinfulness. Lord, we thank you for what you have shown us, because we know that when you show us these things, it is out of your mercy and kindness to lead us into wholeness. And Lord, we confess those things that you have shown us, that you already know about us. We confess our selfishness, 
our faithlessness, our unwillingness to entrust ourselves to Jesus. And we confess that it is foolish because Jesus has shown himself again and again to be so good. Lord, we pray that you would assure us once again of your forgiveness. And Lord, as we see these things, that you would lead us into the way of righteousness, that you would help us to live more and more as the people you have called us to be, because that is not just what you want, that is what we want. And so we ask for the help of your spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Revelation 5, just a couple chapters later, where it says, They sang a new song. This is a song to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Thanks be to God.